Hello and welcome to Extra Time, the podcast to get you thinking and rethinking the way we influence and impact the health of our nation. I'm Adam Hill, former physician and now chief executive of OnCommune. At this time, when a spotlight is being shone on our nation's health, I will be speaking with leading experts from across the healthcare and life science industry to discuss the opportunities and challenges they're facing as they work towards delivering scalable improvements in health outcomes. All my guests are leaders in their field and have interesting opinions and insights, and together we promise to provide you some inspiring and thought-provoking dialogue. Today, I'm very pleased to introduce my friend, Professor Gino Martini. Gino is Chief Scientist at the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, the body that supports the pharmacy profession across the UK, as well as championing pharmacy across media and government, leading the way in medicines information. Gino is a registered practicing industrial pharmacist and fellow of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, who spent the best part of 17 years of his career working in industry, most notably at GSK, Roche and Shire Pharmaceuticals, across a variety of commercial, technology-based and medical affairs roles. Today, Gino divides his time between his work with the pharmaceutical industry and King's College London, where he is a professor in pharmaceutical innovation. Now, Gino normally sits on the other side of the microphone, hosting the Farm Side Today podcast with Sarah Cahill, so I'm delighted to have the rare opportunity to be asking the questions this time. Gino, welcome to Extra Time. Adam, it's a real pleasure and a privilege to be asked uh, to go on your show and give my views. Thank you. So uh, let's start off with the journey that got you to where you are today, before, before telling us a little bit about your role as Chief Scientist at the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. Yeah, so I mean, I'm I'm an industrial pharmacist, so I, I train to be a pharmacist. And for those who uh, were expecting a sophisticated Italian, I'm I'm very much from Liverpool, born and bred. Um, but I, you know, I, I did pharmacy. I went to Manchester to study, and I really uh, liked the concept of drug delivery, so did a PhD in that arena. So I never really expected to go into industry. It can happen by chance. Uh, and then I really, once I got my PhD, I worked for what is now Catalans, but it was a very interesting drug delivery company. Uh, and then joined SmithKline Beecher and then became GlaxoSmithKline. Um, and during that time, I felt I was always kind of a frustrated academic. Uh, I felt that industry was constraining my freedom to think, my freedom to innovate. So I, you know, it was out of that or a midlife crisis. So I, <laughs> I decided to go an academic. Um, uh, I became professor at King's College London. I still hold the visiting chair there, uh, pharmaceutical innovation, there. and I really enjoy that role. Um, and and obviously having a research group, I, I think I, I went through about five PhD students, all, all, all successful, um, and interact a lot of industry, did a lot of consulting, and I really you know talk about flexibility and freedom to do what you wanted to do. Uh, I really enjoy that role, and then I was kind of enticed back into industry, which I, which I which I did. Uh, again, which I enjoyed. Uh, and then, uh, unfortunately for industry, I suppose, um, the opportunity to become chief scientist for the Royal Pharmaceutical Society came up. I just felt I had to do it. It was something I always wanted to do. It was a real privilege and honour to be the chief scientist for my profession. And so I embarked on that career. That's kind of a, a kind of a, a whistle-stop tour of my career. So started in community, actually, then industry, then academia, now in a professional leadership body. And they've all been really quite different. So they're all very good learning experiences for me. And uh, an incredible position that you have at the moment, um, very much at the, the pinnacle of that pharmacy profession. I've, I've never heard anyone refer to taking on a chair in pharmaceutical innovation 
as a as a midlife crisis, better than buying a Ferrari, I suspect. <laughs> um, but but tell us tell us a little bit a little bit more about your time at, at GSK. You you had a number of roles there, um, and and if I'm not mistaken, you were you were involved in in also developing affordable medicines for the BRIC countries. What, what was that like? What were the what were the challenges you were facing in those markets? Yeah, I mean I mean initially I started the bench and in R and D, and I worked up to. Senior director role, looking at innovative technologies, and then uh, I was given the opportunity to do more in the emerging markets. It was at the time that GSK, one of the few companies, in fact, that really tried to embrace uh, the emerging markets. And actually, I, we did. I think we were one of the first companies to actually form alliances with a generics company like like Dr. Reddy's. Yeah, at one stage, it's almost you know dancing with the devil kind of thing expression. But ultimately, we did that. Uh, but now what you see is quite commonplace. You'll see big pharma companies like Novartis, who have a Sandos division, actually led by Richard Sainer, who, who I used to work for at GSK. Richard's a great guy and also a pharmacist, I, I mentioned to say. Um, but I think what really struck me, and, and, and I really wanted to share that with, with people, is that I must have been in my 40s, and it really dawned upon me, and to my shame, actually, that actually I realised that the NHS was such a unique body, that the NHS... That to get you know free treatment to the point of care was actually not commonplace, you know that we were one of the few countries in the world that did that, and that you go all over the world, you know people have to pay and what they call out of pocket, uh, or have special insurance programs they have in the United States. I don't know, and, and, and to me it was quite embarrassing that I hadn't realised what a great institute. Well, I knew the NHS was, was important and was great, but how great it was, how great the concept was. Of the NHS and how unique it really was, and that's something that really struck me. Then, of course, what struck me again is what we call the pyramid of wealth. That clearly there was a spectrum of wealth in these countries. Some people were very rich, some people were not very rich, and therefore you have to approach it in a very different way. We're looking at generics, super generics, and what we call the basket of offerings to try and you know offer medicines that were affordable to everybody. You know, and, and, and it's really interesting because if you look at the fast-moving uh, consumer goods industries like Unilever, I mean, they, they kind of nailed this years ago. You know, instead of supplying a whole bottle of shampoo, you supply the little sachets or, you know, certain um, uh, cheaper versions of, of razor blades that actually will allow people to shave with longer stubbles because, of course, you know, they can't always shave on a regular basis. It's a commodity. So you understood that actually you had to provide a spectrum offerings. You know, I suppose I equate it when you walk into, like, like Tesco, you've got, you know, you have the branded products, you have the Tesco finance range and the Tesco ordinary range, then you get the cheapest chips range. You know, you had to offer that spectrum because that's what it was. But it was a real humbling experience for me to realise that the um, that some people really did have not a lot and we had to deal with that. And, and I think that was a big learning for me. Um, and also that you know, evolution of technology, you know, skips a beat. I mean, look at the mobile phone. I remember, I'm old enough to remember the big house bricks, you know, and now we've got the very small mobile phones in your hand. Well, don't assume all countries will follow that evolution. They'll just go for straight for the most sophisticated range. Mm. You know, a lot of the countries will follow you and say, well, well, I don't want the house brick. I want that one, you know, the one that is all singing, all dancing. So I understood the mindset and it, the, the fast pace, the way things moved. Regulation will change within weeks, and they're used to the larger and more regulated agencies. You know, it would take ages getting anything through, but in these countries, things could tap, could change overnight, and literally they did. Uh, and also, the other thing was that every country was different. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you look at BRICMET, all the regulatory 
um, requirements were very, very different. Often, if you were to make a product in that country, you got more, should we say, leniency or more accelerated reviews. So it was a big learning curve for me, and, I, and, and like I said, a real humbling one. And, and I, I got to you know, cherish the NHS because I realised how unique it really was. So that was my perspective. Really enjoyed it. I did a bit of travelling, saw different cultures, and understand and understood, you know, um, you know what was acceptable, what wasn't acceptable in different in different countries as well. So that's what it. And I felt, you know, we were doing the right thing in, in providing an affordable spectrum of products to 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 patients. I mean, speed speed of um, innovation and overcoming regulatory hurdles is not something that. Um, the life science industry is uh, is often very good at, except maybe in these circumstances, as as you described. But of course, the the most recent pandemic over the last six months has seen the development of multiple assets. I think over one thousand two hundred therapeutic assets currently in development for COVID nineteen. Is this the new norm? Are we are we seeing the pharmaceutical industry now move from developing assets over a, a five, six, seven, eight? year period to to a, a 12 to 18 month period well i mean i i think the working working smarter um and quicker in in some ways and and let me be really clear not to the detriment of patients and that's 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 clear um, i mean i have i have spoken to people in the industry you know and i can and I, and I know quite from the horse's mouth that for example it takes three four months to approve a a protocol that's happening in weeks or days so, you know, because obviously there's a necessity, you know, they say, you know, necessity is overall invention. And, and clearly we had a situation where people are dying. There was no obvious treatment or, or cure for this disease, COVID-19. And so everyone was working together in a coordinated way, which is some of the, one of the possible learnings which I'll share later on, I suppose, that I, that's impressed me. Uh, but ultimately, um, I think what we're seeing is working smarter. Why do you need six months to review a protocol? You know, if you could do it quicker, that'd be fine. And, and I think we're, we're already seeing things like adaptive clinical designs where we're actually assessing the outcomes as, as we go along, which I think is always a smart thing to do. I mean, what always struck me, you know, think about the mindset that, we, that used to happen. You'd have a company with a large phase three clinical trial uh, of a particular, aiming a particular receptor or a pharmacological response, and it would fail. Only for, you know, a year later, another company to come along and do me too of that study and guess what? That would fail as well, you know. And, and I think you know that was the mindset that a lot of organisations were 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 doing six seven years ago. I think now what I'm seeing is more collaborative uh, working, uh, more open innovation, more cross fertilisation. I'm a big fan of cross fertilisation. You know, I, I see you for example. You're, you're a friend of mine. I've seen that. You know, you've moved around different sectors, and I think that's great because that's what we need. We need people who've, who it's a, it's kind of called fluid boundaries where people move backwards and forwards between different sectors. And, you know, in certain countries, they're highly valued because they bring different experiences. You know, the day when we had someone stay in an organisation for 25, 30 years, I think, are, you know, are going, mm-hmm. uh, but are quite mm-hmm. common, actually. And that doesn't bring new ideas across fertilisation. So the fluid boundary concept of people moving around different sectors, I think, is a very important one. And you do see that a lot in countries like Germany. I think that's why they're very successful. Um, in terms of getting things done and, and understanding the importance of science as well and scientific discipline. As, as you and I have developed our parallel careers over the last 20 years or so, we've been very much exposed to in the life sciences this idea that 
um, that there isn't one size to fit all, um, that, that there is indeed an ideal where we can treat each individual patient in a personalised fashion. Stratified medicine is, I think, the term that people used to, used to use, and maybe now precision um, medicine is, is more the term of, of the day. But of course, that approach has been highly dependent upon diagnostic tools, diagnostic tools that have come sharply into focus over the last few months with, um, with COVID-19. How, how do you think the pharmaceutical industry is going to evolve to um, the introduction of many of these diagnostic tools that give us the opportunity to detect earlier and stratify patients better? Well, I mean, the current crisis is a classic example, isn't it? I mean, people are responding in a very, very different way to the virus. Uh, if it's almost an inflammatory reaction, but they're all, they're all reacting in a very different way, depending upon your genetics, I suppose, your, your physical condition, whether you're extremely overweight, uh, your ethnicity, if you're bay, um, um, and also how much virus you took, you know, the, the actual viral load. And it's very clear we're seeing segments of reaction to the virus. So that's an extreme example where we now realise that people are, are responding in very different ways. I think the industry is embracing precision medicine. Um, I, I think, you know, I look at, and I, I, use the, I use the example all the time about the car industry, but if I was to buy an Audi A3, uh, certainly in the United States anyway, I think I'd get something like nearly 850,000 different permutations of that car delivered to my, to my <laughs> front door, okay? And, I, and, I'm, and this is something I've always been a great believer in, that we do need to provide customization or personalization options um, to all our patients. You know, I, I, I still practice pharmacy. I see huge combinations, very complex concoctions that people are taking all the time. And, you know, you think to say, well, are they getting the right medicine at the right dose at the right time, what have you? And diagnostics is the way to go, clearly. Um, you know, I'm, I look at my own genetics, highly likely to get diabetes. I'm taking steps to try and stop that. But I, re I regularly check my blood sugar levels, you know, as well as my blood pressure to make sure I'm, I'm on top of that. And I think that, that extension, that accessibility uh, to technology now that allows you to be able to monitor your health has really become uh, very impressive, more accessible as well. Sensors in your phone can tell whether you've got a problem with your, uh, with your heart. I've been very impressed with the, with, with the atrial fibrillation system that's been devised where, uh, where you can actually put your fingers onto the, onto the, onto the measure of the mm -hmm. monitor mm -hmm. and you can actually pick out whether you've got atypical ECG or not. Because obviously AF is often asymptomatic, and so it can screen you out very, very early. And of course, all the cancer tests as well, potentially, that can come through. Early diagnosis is extremely important. So I think the industry is embracing it, and I think that they are fast-tracking it. I think the COVID-19 has shown an example um, of the, how extreme it can be. But more importantly, I think it's raised the expectation of the general public. You know, they see... The search of a vaccine, they see the importance of diagnostic tests. You know, antigen antibody testing now has now become complex in our vocabulary, and I think patients would expect uh, to see that kind of level of detection and expertise in other diseases, particularly in oncology, uh, obviously in diabetes, happening already. So I think it's happening now. I think the industry has seen it and seen the opportunity. Um, and I think it's the way to go personally. Well, one of the um, one of the great challenges I've always found with earlier detection of disease is, of course, 
the earlier the disease, the less likely you are to have signs and symptoms of that disease. And so it's very unlikely you've been to see your, your doctor. You haven't made an appointment with your GP to go and discuss your, your, your issues for there to be a, a diagnosis. However, it's always struck me that um, very much the front line of community medicine is, is your local pharmacist who, who sees people not just to prescribe over-the-counter medications, but prescription medications and all sorts of um, other day-to-day -day items um, on, on the high street. Uh, how, is, how is the role of the pharmacist evolving, do you think, in, in response to COVID-19? What, what does the future of community pharmacy look like? Well, I think it's a, it's a promising future, a great future. Um, you know, I, and for those who don't know, I mean, I, I volunteered. I, so my local pharmacist was inundated with a huge workload. And I did uh, a lot of my spare time in the evenings and the weekends. Um, actually, we raised money for charity in doing so. But ultimately, um, you know, we were accessible. I mean, in the high street, you know, our doors were open. Uh, the co-op was open in the high street where I live. Um, the bakers was open. Uh, the chippy was open, as they say in Liverpool. Um, but actually, the pharmacy was open and very accessible. And I think a lot of people really appreciated that, actually. And I'm very proud to call myself a pharmacist um, and because of that. Um, and I think, you know, what we're going to see... So right now, anyway, we, we do flu vaccinations as, as, as a rule. Uh, whether this new vaccine will um, allow itself to be inoculated in the community setting, we're, we're not sure yet. But certainly pharmacists can play a role in vaccinations as well uh, for, for, for COVID-19. And obviously there's some controversy about what kind of, anti, you know, could, could you do antibody testing properly um, in a community pharmacy setting? Antigen, obviously less likely because you're presenting symptoms. So obviously advice to stay at home. But clearly we're accessible. Uh, we're on the high street. People can come see us and we could play an active role. So I think that's where I can see us playing a lot more vaccinations. I was always a big proponent of that anyway. I was, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be quite open and honest. I was always concerned about the vaccine hater situation mm. that was developing. Mm. Um, you know, um, you know, I'm going to believe in MR vaccination. Uh, we underestimate the importance of what vaccines have done to help uh, human health care around the world and all the things, all the diseases it's present, prevented. You know, we forget how nasty disease, mumps, rubella, rubella can be. So ultimately, I'm a great vaccine support and I always wanted to see pharmacists do the MR vaccine, to be honest, as well as the flu vaccine. So I think we can do a lot more and I think we will do a lot more. Just depends upon whether technically it's feasible to do so uh, with COVID-19 because of the limitations of the, of the virus themselves and storage conditions, what have you. But it's still too early to, to say. And, and I think that's where the role will, 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 will I think, will develop and, and merge uh, going forwards. I mean, certainly pharmacists have, um, are, are one of those professions that um, are the unsung heroes of, um, of this current pandemic and our response to it. And you should rightly be proud to be amongst their ranks, Gino. There's been a lot of negative press, actually, in the mainstream media. Um, in both the government's handling of and the response to the pandemic. But what, what beyond um, your, your own profession has inspired you about our response to the pandemic? And, 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 and how does that make you feel about the future of healthcare? Well, I think the, um, I also think it's very, it's very easy to criticise um, uh, governments and, and reaction. I think it's very easy to do that. And as Chief Sciences of World Pharmaceutical Society, 
you know, I've been placed in positions where I've had to make judgment calls based on very limited data, data that's coming very quickly. I do think we need to go back to a bit more peer review and slow things down every now and then. But ultimately, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with a pandemic, the pandemic means it has, it has to happen quickly. Uh, the bit that's really encouraged me, Adam, has been the great collaboration between pharma, uh, with academia and other research groups. It's been really good to see, you know, people working together, GSK working with Sanofi, AstraZeneca working with other organisations in a collaborative way, you know, sharing uh, resources, sharing ideas um, and just getting, just getting the job done in a coordinated, open, collaborative way. I think it's been fantastic. And I'm a great believer in that as well. Even before the pandemic, I've been a great admirer of, of Vive, you know, development of HIV medicines. And what is that? That's a collaboration between GSK, Pfizer and Shinogi. Showing you, you, you get the cross-fertilization, different organizations working together, you get a really good outcome. And, and, and I'm really a great believer in that as well. So positivity. And the pharmaceutical industry have been amazing. Um, yeah, I've seen comments about profiteering. You know what? Guess what? Pharma being good pharma, they've really stepped up uh, and they'll be delivering vaccines and medi- medi- medications at a cost and make it accessible. And, and uh, again, and, good, and they should be uh, acknowledged for that and should be applauded for that. And the way they responded has been amazing. And uh, that, that to me, if we can keep that camaraderie, keep that positivity, that open collaborative uh, behaviour, I think the, all the signs are going to be absolutely fantastic. And we're all going to benefit. And I, I, I recognise also that partnership is certainly not unique to a pandemic, but we've seen a, a huge amount more of it. And 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 partnerships amongst tradition traditionally competitors, um, which is which is remarkable. Many organisations need a pat on the back for their response. In my mind, finally, if you could pick three people to sit in sit in the seat that you're in now on extra time being bombarded by my questions, uh, who, who might they be and, and, and what sorts of questions might you ask them? Well, I mean, the first one would be Professor Jane Lawrence, who was the previous chief scientist. Um, <laughs> yep. and, and she's from my neck of the woods. Um, um, can be quite formidable. A friend, but formidable, <laughs> as, as they say. <laughs> I'd say, Jane, have I, as, as the old chief scientist, have I done a good job or a bad job? You know, I mean, it's always good to have that view. And, you know, and one thing about Jane is, you know, she'll tell you what you really, you know, what she really thinks and what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. And I'm a great, great believer in that. I, I think we've developed a culture in the world that people want to hear what they want to hear don't, and don't, don't, don't respect challenge. And I think that's a real big mistake and I think has created a lot of bad behaviours. And I think that needs to stop. And we just need to embrace the fact that actually, if I'm wrong, accept the fact that I'm wrong and also acknowledge the fact that someone's told you that in a positive way. I'm a great believer in that as well. The other one, a very good friend of mine, and he's my mentor, Professor Chaz Bountra, uh, OBE, who's based at Oxford, who's actually one of the shining lights for open collaboration and a great friend of mine. And again, just to see, ask him the question as well, you know, what else could we do better? How can we collaborate you know, even more effectively? You know, what lessons learned? You know, what really could have been improved better? I think one of the things he may say, and I think it's happening with vaccines right now, is we need to let people understand that clinical trials are important and we need people to volunteer for these trials. Um, and I think that's going to be an issue. And certainly people from diverse backgrounds, you know, obviously with, with BAME as well being so prominent. So, you know, again, he's a, he's a great guy. And the one I really would like to get in the chair is Professor Chris Whitty. 
because <laughs> you've got to feel sorry for the guy. <laughs> he's, you know, at least I've been in my job for two years, but you know, he's just been in post what like three months, and and all this bloop around him. And I have to say, I I, I think he's been he's done a great job you know, under the circumstances that he's been thrust into. You know, okay, he was obviously growing into the role, but it really is a very difficult situation to handle a pandemic like that. And I think he's done it really, really well as best as he can under the circumstances he was he was placed under. So. They're my three. And it's a great question, by the way. I had to really think about it. But the previous <laughs> chief scientist, my mentor, Chaz Bounter, and the CMO, Chris Whitty, who I'd love to interview one of these days if I send him an invitation. Well, three real titans. Jane, Chaz, Chris, you're... Uh... Your invite is in the post to come and join us on Extra Time. <laughs> um, thank you, Professor Gino Martini. You've been an absolute star. Um, I've really enjoyed learning a little bit about your career to date and what's led you into this most prestigious of, of positions and, and your thoughts on our response to COVID, um, which, have, uh, which, are, which are balanced, sage and pragmatic. Many thanks for your time. Thank you, Adam. And I, on behalf of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, thank you for the invitation. And I'd like to invite you to one of my podcasts for an interview, just to see what you're doing, the great work you're doing in cancer treatment. I'd be delighted to join you.